Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. I have said this before. I was born on a Sunday and I was in church the next Sunday. My dad was a pastor. All my older brothers are pastors or were pastors before they retired or got kicked out. But, uh, uh, you know, to say that church is the Hornock family business would be an understatement. We, we just, I grew up in church. And uh, one of the things I've observed uh, through my church experience, being a pastor's kid, being related to all these other pastors, and then actually being in ministry, their youth ministry or this ministry for over 40 years now. One of the phenomena I've observed, and I bet you've observed it too, you've seen people that have been right in the middle of it all and had great relationship with the church, great relationship, it seemed like, with Jesus Christ, and they're vibrant, maybe even rose up into leadership within the church, and then, a few years later, they're not involved at all. In fact, they, they continue to drift and drift and drift, and eventually you see them. And I mean, they're just living like downright pagans, totally devoid of any kind of spiritual interest. And, uh, and you're like, what, what was that that's going on there? And, you know, it'd be quick and easy to say, oh, well, they're just unbelievers. But truth of the matter is, you knew them when they were really walking with the Lord, and that wasn't the case. They were believers. And we ask ourselves, okay, what was the problem? What was it that was go- that's going on there? How did that happen that that person fell away so far and so deep? I think we're going to see the answer, maybe the primary answer today. If you got a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 15. We're resuming our study of Matthew, and just where we are in the story of uh, Matthew's telling of Jesus' life is here. Okay, Jesus has been offering himself as the king. Remember, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the authorities, they've made it clear, we don't want anything to do with it. In fact, they've already come up with an explanation for Jesus as to why he can get such crowds, why he can do these, these, these tricks like, you know, make the blind see and the lame walk and all this other stuff. They're saying he's doing it all in the spirit and power of Satan. And so they fully and well, the power brokers, they fully well intend to officially reject him. We're not going to have anything to do with him. And they're just trying to figure out how to squash him right now. Well, Jesus, being God, he knows the whole story. In fact, he knew that this was going to be the story from the beginning. And what he has done is when the authorities basically came up with the explanation that he does all of this stuff in the spirit and power of Satan... What Jesus did was he started focusing on his disciples to prepare them for the next season. 
And what was the next season? After he died on the cross, was buried, rose, went back to heaven. It was the church. And so Jesus is in that season of preparing his disciples to become the leaders of the church. Peter, James, John, the rest. All of the stuff we're seeing in this section of Matthew is primarily intended to equip those disciples to be the apostles of the church. And, and we can take it, it's he's preparing us, he's trying to equip us for our role within the body of Christ, within the church. So this all started in Matthew 14, and so today we're in Matthew 15, and what we're going to see is, is another truth that I think is just absolutely essential that we, if we really and truly want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, this is something we got to grab really tightly and understand and personalized. So Matthew 15, you got your Bible open. Let me, uh, let me just walk through the passage here. Matthew 15, it starts off and it says, Then some Pharisees from and scribes came to Jeru- Jesus from Jerusalem. Now get that, okay? Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now we already know why they're coming to Jesus. They're coming to discredit him. They might look like they're very sincere. They might look like, hey, we, you know, can you just tell us one more time? Because I, I'm kind of on the fence trying to figure out, do I believe? Do I not believe? Do I follow? Do I not follow? Just, just can you give it to me one more time? They're, they're not there. They have already in their hearts decided this guy's of Satan. Okay, so that's really important to understand. But I want you to notice something else that's in that verse 1. They are from Jerusalem. Where is Jesus at this time? He's up in Galilee. He's he's way north. I mean, this is almost like he's in California, and the officials from D.C. are here to talk to him. It's like they are—this is a major— confrontation that's going on. This isn't just some little old Pharisee from, you know, Capernaum or Nazareth or some other place. This is someone from headquarters. It's like, okay, we're sending in the big guns. We're sending in the real FBI agents, the guys that have been on the job for a long time, and these men and women can really get to the bottom of this. And so in their mind, they're there to totally discredit Jesus because they want to squash this thing out without his without as much uh, drama as they possibly can. So here come some Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem to talk to Jesus. Look at verse 2. And they're asking him, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? A lot of nuance in that. I mean, these guys, they they don't want to come straight at Jesus and say, why are you doing this? Because they know the crowds like him. They don't want to offend the crowds. But hey, you know, your followers are not doing this and this and this. And so they're pointing it out. It's just a little bit more politically correct or socially acceptable to, to point out Peter's shortcomings rather than Jesus' blatant 
you know, disobedience to their traditions. Why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? For, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, again, you maybe understand the culture of this, but just in case you don't, I mean, in those days, before you ate dinner, you didn't just slip over to the powder room and, you know, give yourself 15 seconds, or I guess now we're supposed to give ourselves 20 seconds of hand washing before we started eating dinner. I mean, these guys did the whole thing as if they were surgeons, you know, all the way up to the elbow, thoroughly washing, washing, washing. And, you know, Peter, James, and John, they didn't do that kind of stuff. I mean, they just, you know, hey, the food's here, let's eat, you know? And they point this little air out to them and say, you know, you're guys, if you're, if you're leading people to a spiritually minded life, a, 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 uh, the theologically correct life. I mean, what? I mean, can't you teach your guys to wash thoroughly like they're supposed to wash? Look at verse 3. He answered and he said to them. Now, he knows this is an attack. So what is Jesus going to do here? Look at the rest of these next couple of verses. What Jesus is going to do is thoroughly expose these Pharisees' hypocrisy. Because these guys from Jerusalem, just like all of them, these guys were major hypocrites. And what Jesus does is he takes this little setup, and instead of just answering their question, he poses back to them another question with an accusation hidden in it that basically thoroughly exposes the fact that these guys are just hypocrites. Hypocrites, because it even calls them that in verse 7. So he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of, the, of God for the sake of your tradition? Well, how so? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. Well, that's pretty straightforward, and that's one of those commandments that just about everyone could sign on to. That's just right there with murder and adultery and stealing. I mean, honor your father and mother. That's the fourth command or a fifth commandment. But what you say, verse 5, you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been already given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. That's a little hard to understand and, and unpack there, but let me, let me, uh, let me try to unpack it. What's going on here? The, the, the Pharisees had this, this fancy, well thought out little loophole of how they could utilize their money any way they wanted to. And it's kind of like in a way they put it all in trust for God. And, you know, they controlled it. They obviously needed to use some of that money for themselves, for their personal use. But any time that there was some need or request to use some of that money for something they really didn't want to, they could just say, well, that's God's money. I, I, I really can't do it. You know, in a way, it's maybe kind of like uh, 
someone, uh, you know, a, a corollary in our society might be some, some employer provides their employee with a, with a company car, and you can use that company car. We'll pay all the expenses on it. We'll pay the insurance, the gas, the maintenance, everything. And in fact, we love you so much, you can use it for all the personal use you need. I mean, there's some people that have that kind of a deal with their, uh, their, uh, their company. And your mom comes along, and she always wants you to do errands for her. And you're sick of doing things for your mom. You don't want to do anything for your mom. Can she just go to the grocery store herself? Well, no, she's 89, but, you know, get somebody else to go. And you're just sitting there because you're tired of serving these older parents of yours. You know, yeah, you know the Bible says honor your father and mother and take care of them and all that stuff, but you don't want to do it anymore. And so you look at your mom and you say, Mom, I can't do it. I don't have a car to do it. And she's like, well, what about that? Well, that car belongs to the company. Yeah, but you can use it for personal stuff. Well, yes, I can use it for personal stuff. You're not personal, Mom. I mean, you got to ask one of those people over at your church to take you to the grocery store. I don't have time to take you to the grocery store, and I don't even have a vehicle to take you to the grocery store because my car belongs to the company. And yeah, they'll let me drive my kids to soccer. They'll let me go to the grocery store. I even went to, to Colorado on a ski trip with my car. But taking you to the grocery store, that's not personal. It was that kind of a stupid little loophole that these Pharisees had grabbed onto. And so the long and short of their situation was anyone and everyone could look at it and say, those people are not taking care of their mom and dad the way the Ten Commandments commanded us to do it. So do you get the situation that's going on here? They asked Jesus, why doesn't Peter wash his hands before he eats lunch? And Jesus looked at them and said, and why don't you take care of your old mom and dad? I mean, your mom and dad are on poverty, in poverty. Your mom and dad don't have anything going on to help themselves, and you've got all these resources and you're not willing to do it. And what you're doing is blaming it on God. All that I have that I could help you with, it's all in trust for God. And I can't take God's money, Mom, and spend it on gas to get you to the grocery store. I can't take my time, because I've given all my time to God, I can't take any of that and use it to help you with those things you need around the house. And so what were they doing? They basically were dishonoring and neglecting their mom and dad and blaming it on God. So you see what's going on? Well, look where Jesus goes with this. He says, verse 7, you hypocrites. You guys are supposed to be the religious leaders. You guys are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You guys are supposed to be the models of of how to live a God-honoring life. People are supposed to be able to say, well, if I live like him, I'll be okay. If I live like her, I'll be okay. I don't really know how to handle this situation, but this is what Pharisee number A would do. I'm going to do it that way. You're supposed to be the, the, the model of a follower of God. And look what you're doing. You're a hypocrite. You claim to be following God, but you're you, you, you've used this little loophole to do nothing but satisfy your own desires. In fact, verse 8, he says, Isaiah spoke about you guys, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, saying, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. So here's the deal. These, these really big, wig, big wigs from Jerusalem come trying to expose Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Just quickly turns the tables on them, and Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. And anyone that was watching the situation would have been astute enough to realize, wow, he's made, you know, he's that I've I've seen that, but I've never thought it because, you know, you're not supposed to think ill of the preachers. I mean, they're I mean, they're godly people, aren't they? They're they always we think they're godly. We pay them as if they're godly, but they're not godly, you know. It's interesting that Jesus feels the same way about him as I feel. That, that's what was going on in the minds of those people. Now remember, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is primarily trying to equip Peter, James, John, and the other disciples for leadership. He's trying to teach them a lesson. And this whole scenario raised a lot of questions, but the question that Jesus is going to answer is this one. It's how in the world does a person get that far off? You think about it. Here are people that are in spiritual leadership, in religious leadership of the nation. And these people aren't even doing anything to help their parents, let alone all the other things they probably should be doing as well. Jesus just picked out the obvious one. He wasn't saying, clean that up and you'll be 100%. No, he was just taking a real obvious one where they were coming up short. And it demonstrated the the carnality of their heart. See, do you see the situation here? Jesus exposed it, and he's going to answer the question, you got to beware of this. Because... Because they're all asking, how in the world did that guy get so far off? See, I think one of the things we forget about the Pharisees and the scribes, those religious types that were Jesus was always doing battle with, they didn't start out as hypocrites. They didn't go into that profession because they said, I want to be a hypocrite. They probably started off very sincere. As young people, they aspired to that role because they wanted to they wanted to be involved in what God was doing. They wanted to be involved in, in the kingdom of God. They wanted to help people. They wanted to change lives. They wanted their lives to count. But somewhere over the course of their involvement and participation in these, quote, spiritual things, They turned into absolute hypocrites. And it's worth answering the question or exploring the issue, what was the problem? How did they get so messed up? How is it that a person can be so involved in the community of Christ and then five, seven, or eight years later lives as if the community of Christ has nothing to offer. How is it the person that, that, that can, you know, 
teach or preach or lead and model all this, this, this righteousness, how is it that down the road, they're just almost 180 degrees off of it? What is it that happened? I think that's what Jesus is going to answer in the next section. I think from verse 10 to verse 20, Jesus basically is explaining the heart's importance, our spiritual heart's importance. Look what he said, verse 10. Okay, so he's had this little confrontation with these these bigwigs from Jerusalem. So he calls to himself the multitude, and he said, Now hear and understand, it's not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but it's what proceeds out of the man, out of the mouth. This is what defiles the man. And I love this, verse 12, the disciples come up to him and said, Hey, do you know that when you called the Pharisees hypocrites, that offended them? I mean, why do you think I called them a, fair, a hypocrite, okay? You know, Peter, I'm not that dumb. You know, you offend people and you don't realize it. I offend people, I do it intentionally. But he answered and he said, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. I mean, it won't last. Let them alone. They're they're just blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, they're both going to fall in a ditch. And Peter said, verse 15, Peter says, now explain this to me. What What is it you saying here? He called it a parable, this analogy that Jesus made. And Jesus, verse 17 is where we are, if you're following along. He says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? And one of the reasons Jesus is probably emphasizing this is because what were the Pharisees all about? They were just all about, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the T's about, you know, the dietary laws out of the Old Testament. They, you know, here's how you got to wash your hands, but then this is what you should eat, but this is what you should not eat. And boy, if you ever ate of any of those things, that's what's really and truly going to make you an unclean person. I mean, good grief, you're going to be damned and go to hell, you know, if you eat a little ham or some bacon or some sausage on the side. That's kind of their attitude. So Jesus, I think, is focusing on on that part. But here's the point Jesus is really wanting to... to uh, Make, verse 18, but the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart. Now, if you got a a, a paper Bible and you want to underline something, underline the word heart. And by the way, you might want to go back to uh, verse 8, where he quotes Isaiah, where he also used the word heart. Their heart is far away from me. The things that come out of the person's mouth, they don't just come out of their stomach, they come out of their heart. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and that's what defiles the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adulteries, fornication, theft, false witness, slandering. 
These are the things which defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands? That's nothing. See his point? Remember what the question was that, they, that Jesus was going to be answering? These guys were saying, man, this is, th- th- these guys are from Jerusalem. This is the spiritual elite. These are the religious leaders of our nation. They're supposed to be models of spirituality. And they're hypocrites. How in the world did they get so far off that they wouldn't even take care of their mom or their dad, let alone all the other things that they were messing up on? That's the question Jesus is answering. And you know what Jesus' answer is? It's a heart issue. There's something wrong with that guy's heart. There's something wrong with that woman's heart. And I think Jesus, to go back to that very same, the very uh, issue, the scenario that I described it from the beginning, what is it that happened with someone who once was really, really on fire for the Lord, involved in the community of Christ, and now they're just living as if they're a rank pagan? It's a heart issue. And by implication, what Jesus is saying is, folks, you got to guard your heart. You got to guard your heart. Now, before we talk about what that looks like and some helpful things on that, let, let's just do a little quick review of what the Bible has to say about our heart. Now, I'm not talking about that, that meat and flesh muscle that's inside of us that we're hoping pumps about 60 times every minute on average. What is he talking about? What does the Bible have to say about this spiritual heart we have? Now, these are on the back of the bulletin, but if you don't have that, you might want to write these passages down. This is just, I mean, in about four minutes here, I want to give you a little theology of the heart. I mean, probably no better verse tells us what our heart naturally is like than Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? You do not have to teach a little one-year-old how to be mean, how to say no to their parents when they are told to do something. You don't have to teach them how to, to, to start being selfish with the toys down there in the nursery. Why is that? Because we are all born with a corrupt, depraved, carnal, worldly, wicked heart. The heart is deceitful a bit. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Now I'll tell you what, that is countercultural. Because if anything, our society is teaching us that everyone is born with a good heart. You got a good heart. No, they don't. No, they don't. I think it was James Vernon McGee, the preacher that, you know, he's long with the Lord, but you can still hear him on some radio stations. You know, whenever he'd see a baby at church and people would come up to him and they'd say, oh, isn't he cute? And he goes, oh, he's just a sinner, you know? <laughs> I mean, no offense, but <laughs> this kid is heading to hell. They're, we're born sinners, Romans 5. Your heart is desperately wicked. My heart is desperately wicked. 
But here's what happened. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, when we come into a faith-based relationship with Jesus Christ, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 kind of speak to it. One of the benefits of being in Christ is we get a new heart. He doesn't call it a heart, but in 2 Corinthians 5.17, excuse me, you know, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, new things come. Because I trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, I have a new heart. As he says in uh, Ezekiel 36, it's not a heart of stone. I now have a heart of flesh, flesh in the good way. It's not just a hard heart. I've got this new heart. But as the Apostle Paul makes really clear in Romans 6 and 7, one of the problems is that old heart's still there. It's like I'm a car with two engines in it. I've got my old deceitful, des desperately wicked heart, but I've also got my new heart. And that's why the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, 11, for example, to consider that old heart dead. We died with Christ. It died with Christ. But it's like there's that dead heart, but I can still act like it's still alive. I can still honor it as if it is alive and powerful and calling the shots in my life, like it was before I came to know Jesus Christ, like it was before you came to know Jesus Christ. I've got this new heart, but I've also got that old heart. That's why in chapter 7, Romans 7, Paul says, man, the things I want to do, I don't do them. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing them. It's this wrestling match between these two hearts that I have, that you have. And so to go back to what I think Jesus is teaching his disciples, teaching us, it is we've got to nurture that heart. You know, I always like to ask the question at the end, you know, so what? Oh, we went way too far. far. Can you back up? I don't know what I did there. Oh, okay. Here's the deal. Our heart is essential in our relationship with Christ. I mean, the vibrancy of your relationship with Jesus Christ is based upon your heart's condition. I mean, it's just, you, th you think about any other relationship. My relationship to Vicki, my relationship to my kids, my relationship to my, my grandkids, my relationship to my friends. It is all really and truly based upon my heart's condition. If my heart has this critical spirit, I'm going to find the flaw that Vicki has. She only got one. I got a million. If I have a critical spirit, I'm going to find all the flaws that you have. You're going to find all the flaws I have. And those are going to be these big obstacles that are going to keep our relationship separate, distant, the heart is essential in that relationship, and so we need to develop that heart. We need to guard that heart. We need to protect it. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. The reason this guy, who, who, who probably went to the finest theological seminary there in Jerusalem and learned to be a Pharisee of the Pharisee, should have been just really and truly right on spot on with God because this guy actually gets paid to study the Word of God. The reason this guy's got such a major blind spot and can't even take his mom to the grocery store is because this guy's heart is corrupt. And by implication, what Jesus is saying is, Peter, yours could be too. John, yours too. James, yours too. Andrew, yours too. Richard, yours too. We have to guard our hearts. It is the heart. That's where everything proceeds. The guy that commits adultery, it started in his heart. Not necessarily when he first saw that woman and started to lust. Long before that. It's when he fell out of love with Jesus Christ that led him to fall out of love with his spouse and fall out of love with righteousness. And he walked that path and walked that path and eventually betrayed his family and committed adultery. The guy that, 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 that lies so much and... and you know, cheats on this and cheats on that, steals from his employer, steals from the government because he doesn't do his taxes right and all those things. All of those things started in his heart, Jesus said. That guy that you're sitting and talking to and you're like, he's lying to me. This guy's not even telling me the truth. I mean, I'm just asking him to fix my car and this guy is lying to me. I can just know enough to know he's lying to me. That all started in that guy's heart. This woman who, who is, is, is gossiping or critical or, or whatever, it didn't start with, you know, this conflict. It started with a heart. It's all in the heart. So let me, let me just kind of wrap up by, you know, a little heart test. You know, a few years ago, uh, uh, I went and had a heart test. Uh, my, old, my brother that is in better shape than all of us, hardly any fat on his body. You know, he was the real jock. He ended up having five bypasses. And uh, his doctor found out that he had four brothers. He said, my recommendation is that all of them go get their hearts checked. And so I did. I went and got my heart checked. I'm in good shape, by the way. So, uh, but, you know, these are the kind of things that happen. This is the way they tested it. They listened for the consistency of it, the rhythm. You know, if, you're, if your heart is not beating with a, a, a proper, consistent rhythm, one of the things they'll do is they'll shock it trying to get it back into. They might even do an ablation where they tweak it even more. Well, take that. How, how does that translate into a spiritual heart? What is the consistency of your life? Let me, to, let me ask you, how often do you pray? And how regularly do you pray? How consistently do you pray? How consistently do you involve yourself in spiritual activity? Is your, is your church attendance consistent and faithful? Yeah, it's really consistent. Easter, Christmas, every time. I have like clockwork. Maybe that's not the right consistency, okay? You know what I'm saying here. It's been, one, of the, the, one of the things that is so bad about uh, coming out of the pandemic is so many of us have gotten ourselves to where we're just, you know, hit and miss. 
And things that we used to make a huge priority, we don't make them a huge priority. If we get there, we get there. If we don't, we don't. We learn to live without it. Truth of the matter is that is a false lie. That's a double, you're not supposed to say that. It's a false lie, okay? You know what I'm saying there. It's a big lie. It's a big lie. What is the consistency of it? How, how are you doing on your giving? How are you doing on your giving? Are you hit and miss about that? Are you faithful in that? That is all speaking to the level of your heart, your spiritual heart. I could go on and on and on. Talk about it. I mean, is there any blockage in there? Any blockage? I mean, we all love lots of things. And it's so easy for those things to become part of our heart and it decreases the blood flow. Whether it's something material or whether it's something, you know, that we're desiring, longing for. That blockage is just going to kill us. It's going to keep us from being the fully devoted follower that Jesus Christ is calling us to. It's going to put us in a position that someday we're going to be stumbling and failing in even the most basic things of spiritual obedience. Like these Pharisees, can't even take their mom to the grocery store. Can't do anything for her. Why? Because they're so busy. Truth of the matter is their heart was hard. They had a lot of blockage in there. You got any blockage going on in your life? Maybe ask someone. Would someone else say you got some blockage? My brother, he didn't know he had all this blockage till he had a test and the guy was like, oh my goodness, we need to do surgery tomorrow, that kind of thing. Let me give you another one. Kind of stepping away from the spiritual or the physical heart exam analogy, but generosity. I think all throughout Scripture, one of the things that, that you see is that God's people who are really and truly walking and vibrant with God, they're generous people. They're generous. They see a need, and they want to see if they can fix it. They, want, they, they, you know, they may not be able to fix it, but boy, they wish they could fix it. Is you, do you have a generous heart? If, you're, if your heart is just so stone cold that you see a person in need, and it's like, well, tough luck, bad decision, should have gone to college. You know, I mean, if that's the way you respond, I mean, that might say more about you than it does them. I mean, how hard is your heart? Is there a generous impulse inside of you that says, I, wanna, I want God to use me and mine, I, I, my, my time, my treasure, my talents, I want God to use them. I want to give them where God has me give them. And maybe one more category. Just in the whole area of compassion and grace and forgiveness. You know, more and more, I, I, I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking, you know, the, 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 the primary message of our lives, the primary message of a you know, if you want to call it a biblical worldview or a biblical approach to life, 
It's the elements of the gospel. And the elements of the gospel are grace and forgiveness. It is, it is that we had a God who loved us, who felt this compassion for us, and in His grace sent His only begotten Son who died so that we could be forgiven. That's the gospel. Is your life representing the gospel? Is the, is the story of your life, the message of your life, conveying the gospel? Is there compassion? Is there a gracious spirit? Is there a forgiveness that is there? And I understand all of those are big things, you know, and, and who do we forgive and how do we forgive and can we forgive and that changes everything or does it change some things or whatever. Lots of big stuff there. But the truth of the matter is, again, do you have a generous impulse? Do you have a forgiving impulse? Is there a graciousness about you? Is there compassion that as you see people who are drowning in, in, in this world of sin, what, what, what's your heart saying? Is your heart even moving? See, Jesus was warning here against a hard heart. And he wasn't so much concerned about these Pharisees. He was, but nowhere near, humanly speaking, as much as he was concerned about Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Matthew and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and the others. He said, guys, your heart has to beat with my heart because we are going to bring the message of salvation to the world. And if there is no grace, no compassion, no forgiveness, no generous impulse, it ain't going to happen. And you guys are going to end up just like these guys and be major hypocrites. That's what his point is. So here's the question for you today. Here's the question for me today. How's your heart? How's your heart? What is being revealed through your heart? Because it's out of your heart that is going to come this life that either pleases God or fails miserably. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you would uh, really just like a laser pierce down and really examine our hearts and help us to know just where it is. And Father, I pray that you'd give us the discipline to start making the appropriate changes. Father, if there's some blockage in there and it needs to go, I pray right now, Father, through the power of your Spirit, it would go. We'd let it go. There's things we're, we're doing, things we're looking at, things we're holding tight. Father, help us to get rid of it. Father, if we're inconsistent, help us to step up. Help us to recognize that that undisciplined life is just a, a life that will, will not produce, will not get us through the storms. Father, I pray that you would help us to be gracious and forgiving towards the people that you have put in our path. 
Father, just slay that self-righteousness that uh, we all are so prone to have. Because, Lord, today we want to, we want a heart that reflects your heart so that we can be part of what you're doing and our lives count for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.